So I've seen good examples where people taking something that looks complex, and it is, and they've atomized it into little chunks. And if we work on this piece and then we work on this piece, but we need to, it's like pretzel logic. What do we do first? And you talk, you talk low hanging fruit and whatnot. What's the stuff that we can do quickly with the least amount of time? So it's like the present and the near future and the far future. And then like, what's easy, what's moderately hard, what's difficult. So a three by three cell. And you start off in that first cell. Something we could do very easy, very quickly. Boom. Ooh, get making progress and things get rolling. And then slowly what you do is you interchange moderate things with difficult things with easy things because you don't leave the hardest stuff for last because then people realize oh okay now the hard work really begins but the psychology is do a couple easy things get people working pretty good together like we can do this right now it's not going to cost a lot and then let's tackle something moderately difficult it's going to take us a couple months welcome trust builders i'm sue dyer and this is lead with trust where we explore how leaders can build their business on a foundation of trust and reap the rewards of becoming the top performer in their market. Leaders that understand how to use and leverage trust are uniquely positioned to disrupt their industry and dominate their market. Distrust of businesses and business leaders is at an all-time high. Trusted businesses must have trusted leaders and your team your customers and your vendors are waiting for you to step up and elevate the level of trust in your business. My hope is that this podcast can help you start your trusted leader journey. Hey, Trust Builders. This is Sue Dyer. And today our episode is a really fun one for me uh, with someone that I really admire greatly. He is a distinguished professor of conflict analysis and dispute resolution at Salisbury University. And he also runs the Bozeman Center for Conflict Resolution at Salisbury University. He is someone who you would probably never hear about, but the impact of his work you will have felt. He goes into the highest conflict areas in the world and certainly in the United States and helps to resolve those conflicts. And he is just a wonderful, very gifted person. And I think you're just going to love it. I love this episode doing it with him. A few of the insights that I got from this episode from him is that whenever you think that something is impossible, it always leads to conflict that that was a very interesting and very insightful concept. Always tell the truth, be transparent, do what you say. And those are how you build trust as a leader. Other thing you talked about several times is how as a leader, you can't tell your people what to do or what the problem is. You need them to be a part of discovering and understanding the problem and creating the solution, which is exactly what we talk about in the 10 intentions that we have in the partnering approach that's in my new book. So I really hope that you love this. Let's get to it. And here is Brian Polkinghorn. Welcome. 
welcome to Lead with Trust, Brian Polkinghorn. I am so glad to see you. It's been a little while, but it's always such a treat to have a chance to spend some time with you. Just you're one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. Thank you. You too, Sue. (laughs) Great way to start the day off. So I know we're here to talk about trust, but I think that uh, I've always asked everybody this question, and then I'm going to have you tell everybody a little bit more about your background. But I ask everyone this question. Tell us what group you belong to or hung out with in high school. The nobodies. <laughs> yeah, you know the what? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I was in the middle of the crowd in an invisible group, but the funny thing was I didn't hang out with the jocks, didn't hang out with the calculus brainiacs or this click or that click. I hung out with a small group of guys and we all wound up becoming, went to West Point, the Naval Academy, medical doctors, CPAs, professors. It was really weird. And we we all hung out because we didn't fit into anything else. I was on track, but I didn't hang out with the track people. I just hung out with this gang and we had, uh, gosh, people from very different ethnic groups and walk of life. And we all lived in the neighborhood and knew each other since. So it was more of a neighborhood group. That's interesting. Yeah. And and I grew up in the DC area and it was highly integrated. We had a large Filipino American community, African-American community. And back in the day, this is, you know, 40 years ago, the uh, dynamics were completely different. And this whole identity thing wasn't as concrete as it may seem today. It was more fluid and, you know, guys just hung out. We were just kids. So I hung out with the nobodies, but we all wanted to become something. <laughs> None of us, you know, we're all alive and everyone's doing well. And you know, we live in different parts of the country and we still talk from time to time. Like, unfortunately, it's like when a parent passes away or something, but you know, everyone did well. Yeah. And it sounds like you had a connection that's continued your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Relationships mean something. Yes, you know, they that's do. more important than anything else. You could risk everything, but not relationships. Excellent. So tell everybody a little bit about your background so that uh, they have some belief and understanding what what (laughs) I know about you. Okay. So I'm not a traditional leader, but I am a intervener of conflict. I've been doing conflict intervention work since the early 1980s. And I'm a professor of conflict analysis and dispute resolution. And I run a center. It's called the Bosserman Center for Conflict Resolution. And we work all over the world, but we also work locally in our community. And uh, we're United Nations University Regional Center of Expertise. There's seven in the United States, and we're one of them. And we specialize, there's 174 in the entire world, but our specialization, and it's the only one in the entire network, is on conflict prevention and creative problem solving. And it's, it's all about creativity and indigenous ingenuity and finding solutions, simple solutions to complex problems. And that's, you know, I like doing it. It's, it's my version of playing a crossword puzzle every day or tinkering with a Gordian knot. Just it's, I'm always intrigued by the next thing that comes up. But one of the things we do do is we work with heads of state, a lot of heads of states. I've worked in about 65 countries. And right now I'm working with two prime ministers on some pretty interesting projects. And maybe in a few years it'll become public, but it's very quiet. They need to be discreet. They need to completely trust me. And I think in my line of business, the quieter you are, the more successful you are. And and you can't advertise. You can't say anything. Now, they can later on say something. But uh, if you got to 
a vested interest in advertising and promoting yourself, don't get into conflict resolution. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta keep that all that in check and be always focused on trying to help those other those folks you work with meet their needs. So I help people meet needs. That's me. I think that's an important lesson too for some leaders. You know, because every every company, every team has a leader, but then there's going to be some form of conflict at some point, depending different levels, different Mm -hmm. types of conflict. But I think it's important to, you know, be the one who, if, who is not a part of the problem, but part of the solution. Yeah. Stokely Carmichael 101. Yeah. (laughs) You know, good leaders, I think, anticipate these things. They are doing a job to help their subordinates do their job. And if they can, remove obstacles and make sure that people are able to do their best at what they do well, then the machine should run pretty smoothly. And they're the ones that when you have to call on them, they typically say like, what can I do for you? And that's the kind of leadership. It's roll up your sleeves, be involved, understand what's going on and not be detached and authoritarian in nature. Some, I think some people think when they rise up, they have to become more authoritarian and over the years, you know, over the decades, I've seen folks, especially dealing with conflict in the private sector and the public sector, who roll up their sleeves and get things done. It's but it's a two-edged sword, Sue. Those good leaders who get things done and prevent conflict can also create conflict by almost being a threat to those who are maybe less comfortable engaging in conflict or incompetent or crooked, those sorts of things. In fact, I've seen it, I've had to mediate several cases with international non-governmental organizations, huge tens of thousands of employees in in an organization where somebody from the private sector will come in and they're very used to going out and being on the the ground in the field, doing something with folks, getting things done, showing results quickly. Something, as soon as something gets on their table, they they assign it somebody or they get working on themselves and and it really disrupts the, the sort of slow concrete movement of the uh, bureaucracy that they've gotten themselves into and it causes problems and they get rid of them. It causes a lot of conflict. I've seen some of the most competent, well-meaning, other focused folks be kind of thrown out from organizations that they believed in the mission, but the way the place was built, the way it was structured, uh, very little got done. It was, and it's almost like corruption 101, corruption Inc. And uh, they get into it and realize, oh my gosh, this is not my, this is not what I expected. But you know what? If you're that good, you can move on to something else. But it's just sad that they weren't able to impact the organization while they were there. Yeah, I've seen that even in smaller businesses, particularly I like I've have CEOs will tell me, you know, I had this vision and and we were we were heading towards it. We we're driving ahead, and they look back and nobody's following. Mm-hmm. So my mm-hmm. definition of leader is a leader is someone who has followers and following is 100% voluntary. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, if you're going into a business, whether you're new or you're old, or you're the founder or you're, you know, the janitor, mm-hmm. uh, everybody leads at some point, sometimes something. And yeah. in order to lead, you do have to have followers. So it also is good news for most, most people because you're not the C-suite in the C-suite, but you can lead and you can, you can make a big difference because yeah. if you get followers, then people are going to listen and you're able to create a little microculture right where you are. And yeah, you know, I got, I have a couple examples where in uh, the TSA, we did some work with the Homeland Security and TSOs, 
and transportation security officers in airports and where in some places these they're called CADEX facilities where there's 5 million deplanings a year, big places, Los Angeles, Denver, Chicago, Philly, New York, that kind of, you know, Orlando. And in some places, it's almost like a typical union labor relationship. And there's the hierarchy and, and everyone plays the rules because that's the way the rules are. But then you go to like the international concourse, like at Philly, or even, even in San Francisco, there's, I saw this too in San Francisco, where there is a microculture because you got people in there who've come in from somewhere else. And when TSA was formed, it went from zero to 55,000 employees in practically no time. So there was like a huge collision of cultures. And you've got retired military, retired police, you got fire marshals, you got air marshals, you've got flight attendants, um, folks from the airline industry all becoming in coming into becoming TSOs. And I found uh, with this research that we did that depending on who was kind of running the show and just call it FSD, Federal Security Director for each one of these airports. And if it's a retired admiral, the retired admiral ran it like a, a aircraft carrier. And if it's somebody who came up from the private sector, they ran it like a private sector business. But I, one of the things I really noticed that down at the security level, like when you go through security into a clean area of an airport, there's a feel. They're all doing the same job. But if you've got somebody who's running it, a supervisor who happens to have been in the airline industry, they're all about serving people and customer service. And there's just a completely different feel. And the people that work for her, follow her, will follow her into a wall of fire. And if they don't bid and get that same job the next go around, they almost feel like they've been cast out because she's she's in the business, the psychological business of two things. One is doing the job, preventing conflict, have everyone focusing on the job of protecting the flying public and protecting these aircraft. And so nothing bad will happen in the air. And by doing so, by preventing conflict with her people, they're focusing on their job. They're not focusing on something that's distracting, that's really ticking them off. They're emotionally distressed. They're really just ticked off about what's going on. And some of these folks know the psychology of followers. They can buy into your program or they can own it. And when you have the psychological ownership of a program where you're, you're consulted, hey, Sue, what do you think about this? How do you guys want to go about this? If we stay within these lines of what the TSA rules are, we can do it any way you want. And then if they build, it's kind of like, hey, we built this thing and they're likely to do it. So I think good leaders do think about people. And there's a difference between paid employees and volunteers. And we treat them differently. But if we all look at starting off with respect and appreciation, we go to recognition and acceptance. And we have all those elements in there, regardless of whether or not we treat them as volunteers or as paid employees, they they will respond to that sort of thinking. I do know, and I've seen this, where you, you treat people well, you include them when you can on decision-making, keep them in the know as transparently as possible. They really feel like they're a part of the mission and not just a cog in the machine. So I, I think good leaders are comfortable with that to the extent that they're allowed to do it. And then the new leaders or the ones that just have an ego trip that withhold information or they, they rule by fear, they rule by secrecy, you see people fleeing the ship. And eventually, eventually they get caught. Somebody upstairs sees what's going on and say, what's going on? Why, why can't we keep anyone in this unit? And yeah, yeah, you know how it works. <laughs> yeah, you know, and in, in airports, the other thing I've seen is, because uh, I've worked with a lot of aviation groups is that the uh, TSA flavor mm-hmm. is very different at every airport. Mm-hmm. And it also the leader 
of course, has a huge impact. And so does the airport's culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they're they're kind of this blending of things. So do they work in partnership with the with the airport, Management. with the airlines, or are they the police? Mm-hmm. I guess I would right. say, mm-hmm. are they the police? And it creates a very different experience for passengers. Very yeah, you know, uh, if you if we're talking about organizations and leadership and things like that, you think it's like Stanford University, right after the Second World War, you had a president and provost, they worked together and, and they brought all this knowledge, post-war economy knowledge into a university and ranked up and geared up Stanford University from a sleepy university to the top five in the world. But they all had the same mission. They all had the same idea. And the president was smart enough to let the provost do what the provost needed to do. And, and the same thing can be said about airports and airport management and then security, the FSD, you know, those sorts of things. And in a medium-sized airport, you might like in Milwaukee, you might have airport management saying, do what you got to do. And there's the land side. And then there's the public side and all, you know, how that all works. And and so there's different elements in different places, but if they're all in on the same mission and, and people are constantly caught doing good things, you could see it being difficult for somebody trying to do something bad at Milwaukee. And they've got a reputation for being one of the happiest places to work. And they oftentimes catch. So what they do is they send people to airports. these like red teams to try and infiltrate the security network and Milwaukee's not the place to go. I'm gonna catch you, man. <laughs> IED it doesn't matter. You can have a you can have a nice strap to your thigh, but people are on it. And I think it's, it has primarily to do with the leadership and the fact that everyone's involved. They know what's going on. All the elements talk to each other on a regular basis. There's no surprises. And you know, I don't even like good surprises. I don't like to be surprised. I like to be able to forecast and predict and have like early warning systems. <laughs> yeah, business not so great. Right. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, one of the things that came to my mind too, as you were talking about the leader and being transparent and bringing people in, is that my experience has been that when you're when you do that as a leader, you tap into the collective wisdom of your group, mm-hmm. and you're now able to have knowledge, know what the problems are way before they become a they're just an issue. They're not a problem. Mm-hmm. You can come up with solutions and everyone buys into them. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the whole business becomes smarter, better, right. and faster. And the research on partnering is showing that, you know, it's about 10% improvement cost, 10% improvement in time, 10% is a little more than that. And satisfaction, which mm-hmm. right now is a pretty big deal in businesses since everybody decided to resign. <laughs> Yeah, no. you gotta the have people. <laughs> well, here's something to think about. You have, uh, it's like an equation. You have folks that look at, say, schedule and budget and those sorts of things, and you know things that be quantified. But oftentimes, what's not put into the equation is what's driving it in one direction or the other: the presence or absence of conflict. And we know that when conflict really ramps up, the people are talking it escalates so quickly that they they kind of run for litigation, post-construction litigation coverage. And, you know, the, the attorneys come in and say, stop talking to people, which makes things worse. Uh, yeah. yeah. So so when we focus on the human element of judgment and problem solving and prediction and measurement and all those sorts of things and the sciences and technologies that go along with it, we're actually doing the, like, the cognitive job of problem solving before we even get there. It's, it's creative thinking 
being exposed for what it is. And I'll say this, we've had cases where folks have, like the, the Woodrow Wilson Bridge was a, uh, like a 11 year project, $2.54 billion. And the federal government was involved because that's the Woodrow Wilson Bridge is owned by the feds. Uh, and it's got Maryland, Virginia and the District of Columbia Transportation Departments and the federal highway folks. And to make a long story short, it's a four headed monster and whatnot. And, and they just off the big dig. And that was a terrible case. I mean, that was just, that was, what? <laughs> yes. I mean, it exploded budgets and all that sort of stuff. Well, the Woodrow Wilson Bridge came in with less than 3%. And that was due to steel escalation because the Chinese tried to corner the market around 2527, somewhere in there. But what they did is they deliberately built a culture of you're rewarded for finding things before they happen. And some of the most creative construction stuff I've ever seen. I'm, we're talking like people solving problems by, hey, I got a guy who worked in our neighborhood who sealed up the sewer system. And, and it has nothing to do with, yes, it does. Because they're thinking so crazy. It's kind of like Apollo 13 where they throw everything on the table and say, hey, this is all they have in the command module. We need to build a filter. We had another one where a young engineer uh, was did found a solution to a pile driver that was killing fish because it was so resonating and so loud. Oh, yeah, I've and had projects like that. Yeah, well, he, what he did is he said, you know, I saw this study on cavitation of corkscrews on submarines and how you can kind of muffle and silence it. And it basically, if you build a filter like that, we should be able to cut down on, on the decibels. And sure enough, a double double line thing with air in there. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, bubble. We had we had to do that on a project I worked on, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like, hey, you know what? And the environmentalists are going like, okay. But here's the thing about that project, which I think the audience should know. The Washington Post and the New York Times and NPR and CBS and everybody else was looking for and waiting for the big explosion. Because, you know, conflict sells. That that gets clicks and controversy and, and heated emotions. Like, yeah, I want to read that story. And uh, one of the very first things that went wrong is they were doing access road to this project and on the Virginia side. And there was some World War II era housing and it had plastered. And because of the uh, pile driving, some of the walls started to fall in, uh, ceilings. And what they did is they said right away, white glove treatment. They took all the people from these buildings, put them up in hotels, said, don't worry about anything, get room service, go to the pool. They went in, they rebuilt these walls and ceilings. They painted the whole place up, put the furniture back in and brought it back in. And it, it was a, a stunning reversal. It got... It's just was so good for the psychology. It was like a huge Hawthorne effect for the entire project. And the coverage on it was, I think, reluctantly very positive. It was above the fold, but it wasn't this like, hey, you know, they're treating people like garbage and whatnot. Uh, what they're saying is this is unusual. We haven't seen this before. Um, let's see what happens next. But the thing is, is, they started off on the right foot. And they did the right thing at the right time. Was it expensive? Yep. But did it buy goodwill? Yep. Did it keep the project on time and on budget and, and keep people from trying to, the community to try installing it? Community was on board. Kind of like, if this is the way these guys are going to, let them, let them get their bulldozers. Let them play in the, you know, the sandbox, man. This is fine. So I mean, there are cases where when people do the right thing, the goodwill that it generates increases the level of trust. And let's face it, trust is something that's bestowed. You don't earn it. It's yeah. So I want to talk more about that because I, I, you know, you walk into, well, I know you've done a lot of work in the Middle East, you know, in high conflict situations, and uh, there's probably not a lot of trust in the room. So tell us more about how how you would deal with that type of situation because 
even leaders deal with that when they have warring factions or silos in their in their organization. Oh yeah, yeah. They don't know me. They see an American, and so they conjure up stereotypes about Americans and whatnot. And they haven't had a chance to suss me out and all that kind of stuff. And so I know if there's going to be a game, there's going to be tests and all that kind of stuff. And if you say you're going to do something, you do it and mean it. And I've had instances where these guys are trying to take over. I've been doing this one case since 2010. And at first it started off very rocky. I want to tell you about this one because I did something. And now, now it went from this is a total disaster to I'm being invited to weddings and to briefs and baptisms and, and you know you know what I mean or or unfortunately funerals some of these folks I'm working with are older but uh, early on I was running a process we took all these folks to uh, Wadham College which is a part of the University of Oxford and we sat them down we had a group of Israelis group of Jordanians group of Palestinians and they opened up with their position papers on this these sets of projects we wanted to work on and it's cross-border cooperation it's scientists it's academics it's not politicians so they all are experts in say desert uh, research or water harvesting or desert agriculture, agronomy, that kind of thing. Uh, even water economics. I mean, we had a we had a hodgepodge of people there, and some of the guys got up and just started talking political stuff. They thought they were the prime minister. They thought they were the king. They thought they ran the PA. And so I got up there and I just thought, this is a test. I'm supposed to be neutral and partial. You know, not taking any sides or anything like that, unbiased. And I got up and dropped a bomb right on our own position. <laughs> so, but see, here's the thing. If you can't trust people, you got to trust something. got to trust maybe the process. And I was walking through a process that I explained to him. I said, look, guys, my time is, and I'm looking at one person in the room because I already figured something out. The Israelis were desperate to have the Palestinians there. And the only reason the Palestinians were there is because the Jordanians were there. And the Jordanians had one guy who kind of ran the whole Jordanian delegation I looked right at that person and said this, you're wasting my time, and <laughs> which is not what I'm supposed to, <laughs> and my time is more important than yours. And they're looking at me like they're stunned, like, who is this arrogant SOB? And I said, I know you think the same thing. And if you guys want to fight and think that you're a prime minister or a politician and say snide things, so like one guy uh, deliberately, one young hothead deliberately said, and the Israelis picked up around away. He goes, we need to figure out what the final solution to this is. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you just did not say that. You know, you said final solution. And everyone's erupting. I figured, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to drop a bomb and rob all the, the, the fuel of oxygen and put this fire out. And, and I said, I didn't come all the way over here to hear you guys play Mr. Politician and whatnot. I said, I came over here because we got the world's leading water economist and he brought a team from MIT and some of the best desert researchers in the world are right here. If you want to talk about economics, water economics, you want to talk about desert research, desert agriculture, water harvesting, cross-water cooperation, cross-border water cooperation, the best people in the room are here to do that right here. And that's what we can do. So I basically said, you're the best people in the world to talk about this time. If you want to do that, I'll stay. If you guys want to continue the bullshit and politics and uh, get everyone upset, I'm leaving. And I look right at this Jordanian delegation leader and the delegation leader just let a little nod like this. And I knew he wasn't going anywhere. If he wasn't going anywhere, Palestinians weren't going anywhere. So I looked at the Israeli dudes and the Israeli guys, I mean, it's a stereotype, but Israelis like to talk in 360 in circles and argue and not listen and talk over each other. And I said, behave yourself. <laughs> I literally, behave yourself. I looked at the Palestinians and said, are we on board? 
Jordan said, thank you. And, and you know what? Uh, it just kind of shook things up. They go like, all right, this guy is in control of this process. We can trust him to walk us through it. And, and we made some very good progress. We actually ended the meeting a day early because we, we moved so fast. And in fact, we moved so fast. I had buyers remorse thinking like they're cooperating too much on these potential projects and they'll go home and people will go like, you agreed to what with who? Uh, so I had to kind of tam- tamper yeah. it down a little bit. In fact, in fact, Sue, I use some of the cases that you and I are familiar with here in the United States on project management and team building and conflict resolution to show them that you can like Tennessee Valley Authority or Oakland Bridge or the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Some of these big, you can do big things yes. and, and, and have very good results to show at the end of the day. And and when you reinforce when your people, these guys, these men and women, that this is the best assembled group in the world that could do this project in your region, you're the best there is. All of a sudden, things just kind of change. It's kind of like, hey, this guy is recognizing me. He's kind of appreciating me for whom I am, giving me the recognition. And they feel like they're being accepted, regardless of what's where they come around the table. And it worked. (laughs) Yeah, you're also framing what the dialogue is going to be about. Right. Um, clearly for them. So you know, th- these are in, these are not in. Yeah. You talk um, also, about that. I leave. <laughs> yeah. It's also interesting because I've had this when I work with labor, uh, labor management is that there, if, if you don't have the conflict last long enough, then the <clears throat> constituents of the people who are in the room feel as though somehow you didn't do a good enough job. Right. Oh, so it's a whole- you, you just have to realize there's a time frame that has to sort of happen before you can come to resolution. Yeah, you you bought uh, that you brought up a, a phenomenal point that I think people are into drama, like dramaturgical analysis. And in fact, in industrial and labor relations, that's like one school of thought. But it is a dance. And the labor people have to come in and the management people have to come in. And if there's a federal mediator, let's say it's a federal mediator comes in and there's there's a, a beginning a middle and end. there are three acts and and there has to be a timing and 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 i think there's two elements in terms of intervening especially when trust is an issue and it's ripeness and readiness and the rightness is are they have they been fighting long enough so that now it's time to come to the table they've proven their constituent we're fighting for you because if they go too early and prematurely it's kind of like hey uh, we didn't get as much as we could. And if it goes too long and it starts to hurt the constituents, you waited too long. So rightness is right at the time. And readiness is the same thing, but the added component of the psychological me- mechanism, I'm ready to talk. So rightness and readiness kind of come in and they sit down at the table. And and I've done this a lot. I've done a lot of labor stuff, police, fire, teachers, unions, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I had one years ago and, and I can talk about it. The It's long gone. It's been 25 years, but I was with my partner who was a federal mediator and they totally trusted him. These people had known, his name is Jim Elmore and they'd known him for like 25, 30 years. He was the federal commissioner, federal, uh, he was a federal mediator. And in one instance, a guy came in, they sat down and I'm, I'm kind of like the junior with working with Jim. And he goes, you guys have your issues? Yeah. And he goes, all right, uh, labor, what are your three issues? They go like one, two, and three. He says, all right, uh, labor, uh, so management. So labor, what are your issues? We have 73 issues. Jim just kind of looks at us. What? If your dad was alive right now, <laughs> he's back here. And I go back out there and get you three and come back in. And it's kind of like, well, that's not what a mediator's supposed to do. But the thing was, he had so much like capital built up with the union and with the management that he 
in mid-play rewrote the script because that's that's part of the he knew where it was going yeah and he was going to stop it right away because this is the first time the labor union guy son had taken over the father's position because the father had died and i think he really wanted to prove to his people that he was just as tough as the old man but i I, i've seen it and you know what it's kind of you know, he says, uh, we'll, we'll take a break and then go off to the bathroom over. And Jim says, OK, we're about to get to the, the finale. We're, we're coming around the fourth turn. We're in the straightaway and they can see the tape. And there's going to be a little bit of training here. And then we're going to run across the tape together and, and you can get me home by dinner time. I said, all right. And sure enough, go back in and, and it's exactly what happens. But he's been he went to the t- he was at the table. He was 17 years old and. and Iwo Jima got shot, was sent home. So right at the end of the week, he lied to get into the military, got it to get in the Marines and, and got shot twice. And Iwo Jima comes back, federal mediation starts. He goes with them all. So he's been at the table for 45 years. I mean, he's seen everything. And it's like, he could predict this. I learned so much from him. Rather than being in, I learned so much how these dynamics play out and how these different leadership structures operate. And um, yeah, he was exactly right. I got him home by dinner time. <laughs> but the thing is, there's an art and a science to that. There's art and a science to leadership. And if you understand and you've got some relationship cachet to use and they trust you, you can do things that other people would never be able to get away with. And so Jim, because he's so highly trusted, he he was a Marine, man. If he says he's going to do it, it's going to get done. You know, mission-driven, team member kind of guy. And And even at his funeral, People came out of the woodwork from all these different areas. They all agreed on the same characteristics. And he was a great leader. He just happened to be the intervener and not like for one side or the other. But he led the process. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. He was a good guy. I liked him. I hope you're enjoying the show. Sorry to interrupt. But if you're looking to improve any area of your life, one of the first things you'll want to do is to figure out where you are today and where the gaps are, and then really get clear on where you wanna go. Visionary leaders need clarity, like human beings need oxygen. It's essential. That's why my team and I put together a great starting point for you on your trusted leader journey. It's called the Trusted Leader Profile, and it will allow you to take charge of the atmosphere in your business by helping you understand your trusted leader style and how you can elevate the level of trust in your business. With understanding, you can make better choices and grow the level of trust and your results. For being a listener to the show, it's 100% complimentary for you to access the profile. All you have to do is go to www.sudico.com slash profile. And Sudico is S-U-D-Y-C-O. Again, that's www.sudico.com slash profile. I really believe that the profile will help you understand the norms you bring to your business and unlock the next level of leadership for you. For the um, leaders that have conflict within their organization, you were talking about how trust is bestowed mm-hmm. or you know earned or bestowed. What advice can you give to them? What would they do? And you talked about in the Israeli-Palestinian Jordanian, they there was a process. 
what would you suggest are the options for a leader who's kind of dealing with that within their own organization? Well, I tell you what, the more the leader has the ability and is comfortable having followers involved in design things like the process. So in the instance with the Palestinians, Jordanians, and Israelis, we all work together to build that process. They didn't come in not knowing what was going on. They, they were part of the architect design team, so to speak. And so when it came to the build thing, they knew exactly what to do. They just misbehaved. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's one thing in terms of getting it to it. The other one is when an issue arises, you can have, you can do it dysfunctionally, decide, announce, and defend just unilaterally. And I think leaders who don't know, don't know their organization that well, or they think it's a command and control thing and not a creativity sort of creative idea organization, and they decide something and announce it. And people are used to having their expertise. And let's face it, Sue, everyone knows things we don't. So I'm, I'm not going to make an engineering decision when I got engineers in the building. <laughs> I mean, ask them uh, and have them involved in some of the big plans. Then, I mean, that's that I think you're, again, you're kind of recognizing their expertise and putting a good, they feel valued. They feel like they're a part of something bigger, not just doing a mechanical piece to a job. And that's, that's helpful. And so when conflict arises, uh, one of the things to do is to bring folks in early and say, hey, I think we're getting off the rails here. What do we need to do? What do I, and here I, I like, I've seen some very powerful leaders saying, I'm constantly working on myself. What can I do better? You guys need to tell me, I, I need honest feedback. I don't need any, you know, you blowing any smoke. You know what I mean? I need you to tell me what I can be doing better. And, it, and, and not like a big, long therapy session. It's kind of like just something short. Okay, I'll think about that and I'll get back to you on it. And here they are. They're, they're running, you know, a couple thousand, 10,000 people, a huge budget. And yet they're asking us for what can I yeah. be doing better? I, you know, I, yeah. I had another one. I don't know if this is such a good idea or not, uh, or you have the time and stamina, but um, there's a university president I work for. He never refused a meeting from anybody. And, you know, you're thousands of employees on this campus, not this campus, but the campus where he was president. So people were very careful. They're like, everybody knows you have access to the president. So everyone's on their best behavior. If people know a president will not meet or only meets with like representatives and whatnot, then people are going to misbehave, will misbehave. So in a sense, it's kind of like, it's like a preventative measure. And if things are going well, there's less meetings, but you got to get stuff done in those meetings, if, if you bring something to somebody's attention, it's kind of like, I'll get people on it. And the one thing I liked about this president is I obviously had to go because of conflict. Um, and there'd be meetings and you go meet with the president and these people and literally his chief of staff would run and, and within hours, all the right people are going like, you need to get together. I want you to get together within the next five days and get these three issues on the table and addressed. Thank you all. I really appreciate it. Have a nice day, President so-and-so. And it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not micromanaging. He's letting people make decisions. But if it's come to his attention, that means, and, and people have kind of followed the chain of command. It's kind of like, I am not going to penalize anybody because somebody came to me. I'm giving you feedback, guys. So let's just solve the problem. Let's not take it personally. And that's so important because, you know, as I've worked with, leaders and I watch them advance within the organization, really large organizations, you know, like 50, 60, 70, 100,000 
employees as they go up to the higher levels. I have always been amazed at what they don't know. Mm -hmm. People here know all this stuff, but as it goes up, they don't know, they don't tell them. Mm -hmm. And then they're supposed to be the ones leading the organization. So one of the uh, 10 intentions that I have in my partnering approach in my book that's coming out is a concept called people don't argue with what they help to create. (laughs) So it's, you know, creating that forum for people to come together and whether it's a creating a solution or an idea or innovation, uh, you know, you, that's to me, the leader's job is to create mm-hmm. those forums. Yeah. Yes. And, and you know what? And that goes back to the distinction between owning something and buying into something. When you own it and you've created it, it's your baby. That baby is the cutest kid on the block. And we know that, right? Yes, he is. <laughs> or she. She She yeah. is the cutest kid on the block. She, she is beautiful. Totally and, objective criteria too, right? <laughs> yes. Well, and, but the momentum that the team gets is amazing because right. they're committed, they're on board, they're engaged and right. they're looking out for it too. So right. what do you think is the most important attribute to creating trust when you have to intervene to with in a conflict? What do you think is the most important attribute a, a leader can have? Hmm. You have to be clear in your communication, simple communication about whatever you're doing. And, and what I mean by that is not putting any provisions or clauses or anything in what you're saying. So if, if something's going to happen, you need to tell, even if it's confidential, say, look, some things will be going on in the background, but we're on it. And the boss should be able to say, and you can walk out of here and you can tell the folks, I've got your back. So there's, you send a message of support. That's the easy thing to transmit. I've got your back. Not a long-winded speech or things along those lines. I think the longer, the more bosses or leaders talk about a problem and not talk about steps to solve it, the less trust the people will they'll walk out of the room not feeling as confident as if they get a simple answer to a complex problem. This is wrong. It's gone on too long. We're going to fix it. So a simplistic message that can be easily transmitted and won't be lost. It won't, it won't be that game where the kids start with one word and go around a circle and it comes out something else. That can be easily transmitted and not be confused or reinterpreted is, I think, helpful for leaders. Yeah, that sounds like a very, very important skill set to get. Because I think a lot of people talk too much because they're thinking through it, depending on whether or not they're a, an external processor. Oh, you know what? That's a, Here's something else to think about. Just think of all these people I've worked with over the years. Shimon Perez, Desmond Tutu, or among some of them, some other heads of state, but Shimon Perez, Desmond Tutu, both did something I, I really appreciated. And they were phenomenal listeners. They just sat there intently. It's almost like, is he awake? <laughs> and then would almost have like this brilliant soliloquy. They would, they would capture everything you just said in the last five minutes, like in two, three sentences. And then in the end of the two or three sentences, give the response. And it's like they, those two messages are congruent. They marry up. It's kind of, oh, my gosh. How did they do that? So there's something, there's something to be said about attentive, really intense listening to the message, the content, the meaning, the feeling, you know, what's being said and, and its associated effect and being able to reflect that back to people. Uh, Desmond Tutu, Papa Tutu, or some people call him the Arch, was really super good at that. He was like, he was definitely connected to the the human factor of everyone he ever interacted with. 
And it just, it resonated with people like, you know, you're the presence of somebody cut from very special cloth just by the way he's interacting with like, wow, this guy is definitely different in a That's very so way. cool. Yeah. And yeah. so listening, That's so cool. Yeah. simple messages, listening. So I know that you lead, you know, the, you're a distinguished professor, you know, so you have that role, but you mm-hmm. also have the role as executive director of the, uh, the center there that you, mm-hmm. you lead uh, at Salisbury University, Bozerman Center for Conflict Resolution. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to create trust within your, your center? Oh, well, you know what? That's people come here in a trust deficit. So they're already stressed out. They, or we go to them because it could be in other parts of the world. We have to present a very clear, transparent picture of who we are. And as I was saying a little earlier, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you're going to be somewhere at seven, you're there at seven. I have a tendency at the very beginning when we intervene, especially in big cases, like there could be over a hundred parties. I don't talk to anybody. If we go for a break, I'll leave the building. I won't be caught by the water fountain with somebody or anything along those lines. Being very careful about appearances and all those sorts of things. I was in Denver working with a whole bunch of American Indian tribes. Though that was a completely different process, by the way. So started out with a smudging ceremony and and invoking the you know your elders, and it was it was a great it was a two day thing. But when we went for a break, everybody was it was like a beehive of activity, all these different related tribes and whatnot. And I said, I got to get out of here. And and I was trying to get out. I was trying. <laughs> so I went, and people were cornering me left and right. I'm just thinking like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's kind of like, hey man, don't. Don't be a, a shy. Don't be stranger. You know, you're with us. And, and I had to kind of adjust. So what I did is I did the exact opposite. I went 180 degrees and went right into the scrum with everybody else and just started talking. And it was a really comfortable thing. And I think because of colonialism and these histories and whatnot, I, it, not me personally, but I represent something to them that leads to a lot of suspicion and mistrust. And, and uh, so I was in there and then a couple of a couple of folks that were highly respected over time. Uh, one was a chief judge said, this guy's okay. Cause we went around the room. They said, who are you? You know, my name is David and I'm um, with the Mohican tribe. I'm one of the last of the Mohicans. Ha, ha, ha. Or I'm Lakota uh, Sioux or, or Seminole or Hopi or Navajo. And they got to me and I said, Hey, look, I'm Brian. And they were all talking about being indigenous people. And I said, I, I think in a sense, I'm indigenous too, but my indigenous roots are in England. And before that, they were somewhere else, not here. If I have to belong to a tribe, I belong to the tribe of David. And and a lot of them are Christians. And right then and there, it's kind of like, well, that's an interesting response. They weren't expecting me to say I belong to a tribe, but everybody else up to that point said what tribe they belong to. And um, I had quite a few people, uh, in fact, two women from the Rosebud Sioux Reservation in, in the Dakotas came up to me. One's a minister. And she said, I'm a rosebud Sioux, but I'm also from the tribe of David. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I'm telling you that story because it was one of these ones where I really learned a lot. My MO is to create professional distance, but a caring attitude, but not appear to favor any one side or the other. In this particular instance, it's kind of like I got pulled into the crowd and I I better, I better use my intuition like on demand and figure out what to do because this is definitely new territory for me. Absolutely. But, but you know what? They got to, they got to feel you out. They got to suss you out. And uh, as long as you're 
always tell the truth, do what you say you're going to do and whatnot. It's a calculus-based form of trust. And by calculus, it's almost like I got a little clipboard and Sue says, Brian, did you take out the trash? And, yep, Brian took out the trash. Brian, did you cut the grass? Yeah, Brian cut the grass. That, and then so they can actually, you know, he, he did what he said he was going to do. But over time, I think the bestowing of trust is that at the individual level, I know there's people that I work with who do not fully trust me or may not trust me at all, but they're, they trust the process. And this is what, this is what you guys want to do. And I'm going to help you walk through it. And you, you own the process, you own the issues, you own the outcome. I'm just going to be kind of uh, moderating or orchestrating as we're going. If I get out of line, I want you to stop me and say, you know, what you're doing right now isn't working and I'll adjust. So I think that's a great tool for most leaders that I don't think they really have in their toolbox. They don't think about it, that they have the power to create a process that can bring people together mm-hmm. and to allow this, you know, uh, aligning and resolving and creating to occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't think it happens a lot. It's like it'll, most of the time it sort of just gets ignored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or or we or we attack the symptoms of the problem, not really right. attack the problem. So. Yeah, the manifestation, <laughs> right, right. We don't get we don't aim the fire extinguisher metaphorically at the base of the flame. We're shooting up at the smoke. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've had some instances where, like with the Social Security Administration, I did a gig for them. It took quite a few years, but it's high stress working in a teleservice center, answering phones all day long with people who are are confused, stressed out, whatever. And like, how do you, how do you like personal care and things like that? But one of the things we came up with was sort of like a, a spot, not a safe spot, but a spot where you can go take the issue into the room and walk out with a solution. It's like a creativity lab or something. Speaking of which, uh, the U S army has a mad scientist lab and uh, it's kind of like skunk works with the Rand corporation. Somebody gets thrown a problem and it's kind of like, Hey guys, can you take a look at this? And, come back with some off the wall ideas. And that's where like creativity and ingenuity and entrepreneurial thinking go absolutely bonkers crazy. And they come back with all these ideas and say, all right, well, we came up with 13 ideas. Three of them we think are actually within the realm of possibility, but you want to see the rest? And and they go from easy to solve. This is the cause of the least amount of pain, but the problem doesn't go completely away. The second set of options is going to be a little pain. It's going to it's going to like hurt our generation, but it's going to help our kids. The third option in order to really solve this is going to hurt us and it's going to hurt our kids. But our society, if we go through this entire program in 25 years, we'll be back to whatever, like a balanced budget. And, and there's and this is kind of gets into another school of thought, futurology, uh, looking at the future. And I'm not talking about, you know, the great Karnak, Johnny Carson with his uh, turbaned kind of, you know, playful comedic kind of thing, but where people sit down and they, they look at these indicators, like 18 indicators, they go to a country and they say, these are the issues that you say you have based on these 18 indicators and in our interviews and whatnot. And they, they can come up with a variety of solutions, but the, there's two points about that there that I think you should know. One is people are engaged in defining what the problem is. So when you say like the manifestation, some people think, no, that's, you're only looking at uh, the, the after the secondary after effect that's not really what the source is so when people are engaged in identifying what the problem is they are much more likely to go in and get in the problem solving process to address it 
But if somebody is to tell you what the problem is, it's kind of like, that's not what the problem is. This is exercise in futility. So you got to trust your folks. You know, you got to trust the, the people that work for you and work with you, that their introspection and reflection and their level of expertise and all the stuff that they bring into the organization is going to be focused on making the place better. And say, you know what, guys, I want you to spend some time and just do some creative thinking. You can go create, just do some creative thinking and give me a continuum. There are people who do that professionally, literally, and they kind of come up with these like different scenarios. It's not the scenario building that you and I know of necessarily, but it's what do you want your future of this organization? What do you want the future of our relationships to look like? And, and they put it on a horizon. So there's futures that we can choose from. And what's the most plausible? What's the most preferable? You know, what's probable? And you want the preferable, plausible to kind of line up somewhere on that horizon. It's okay. If that's what we all want, we think it's preferable and we can do it. Let's let's head that way. And, and we can make a big core correction if we think we've made a mistake. But everyone is involved in steering the ship in some way or another. So everyone's got a dog in the fight. I couldn't agree with you more that you know leadership is everywhere and you need it at all levels. But what you're talking about now is what I would think is like visionary leaders who, you know, uh, and, and maybe, maybe you're not as visionary, but you're thinking now something's impossible because that's what I've seen over and over and over is that people think something's impossible until they figure out a way to make it possible. Right. And then they make it inevitable. (laughs) So, you know, when everyone comes together, so it's, it's a whole continuum of, of working along to make it happen. And thinking something's impossible right there in and of itself is a roadblock that leads to conflict because needs will not be met. It can't get done. No, well. So I've seen good examples where people taking something that looks complex, and it is, and they've atomized it into little chunks. And if we work on this piece and then we work on this piece, but we need to, it's like pretzel logic. What do we do first? And you talk, you talk low-hanging fruit and whatnot. What's the stuff that we can do quickly with the least amount of time. So it's like the present and the near future and the far future. And then like, what's easy, what's moderately hard, what's difficult. So three by three cell. And you start off in that first cell, something we could do very easy, very quickly, boom, ooh, making progress and things get rolling. And then slowly what you do is you interchange moderate things with difficult things with easy things, because you don't leave the hardest stuff for last. But uh, because then people realize, oh, okay, now the hard work really begins. But the psychology is do a couple of easy things, get people working pretty good together. Like we can do this right now. It's not going to cost a lot. And then let's tackle something moderately difficult. It's going to take us a couple of months. And they realized, so I did one, one of these for um, an institution that has about 2000 employees. And I thought these people are going to throw me out on my rear end because I identified 17 issues and I did what's called a appreciative inquiry and the management and the leadership were fine with it the labor folks and whatever. And I identified these things, but I talked to everybody and I said, look, I want you to do something different. We, there are some issues that need to be tended to, but first I want you to tell me what worked, what's going well. If I can go back to the head honcho and say, hey, this unit is doing great work. What is it I need to tell her? In this case, it was a woman. What do I need to tell her that you want, you'll think she knows? And people were really surprised. Like this dude's different. This, we were expecting like, you know, a hatchet man, you know, an investigation and whatnot. Now I want to appreciate what you do. And I had a very good appreciation. I interviewed 154 people and in, in groups and whatnot, and individuals. And, but I always ask them 
I got this issue. It keeps coming up. It involves you. What's working with the rules? What's the most logical way to find a solution? What's the solution? So they gave me all the solutions. And then I went and I showed them these 17 issues and put them in this chart. Right now, near future, far, uh, far off, uh, something simple, something moderate, something difficult, and presented it. And it was unanimous. This is our roadmap. And the institution adopted it. And it took seven years, but they got all 17 issues addressed and things it ran smooth. I couldn't believe I said, look, this is something to change because you guys might change your mind. But it's at least it's a starting point. And and the president uh, of this institution said, uh, I can see why you do what you do. And you know, you feel there's some intrinsic worth, but you feel good when you see people solving their own issues. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got the ability to do it. It's just they didn't know. It's not amazing, but that was impossible. Uh, we didn't know leadership would let us do this. And so when people are going, and they have these own aha moments, which is fantastic. And, it's, and you've got to say to the people up top, you yeah. got to trust me and you got to trust this process. If we yeah. start this thing, it's got to go to the end. And I'm not a hatchet man. I'm not a, I'm not a paid hit man. And in that particular instance, it typically works out that way. We've only had one instance in like the last 20 years where something got, I mean, it was a real screw up it was a security breach and they had to i mean a really bad security breach and they had to kill the project but that's the only one i've ever had gone belly up on me and that's because of something outside of my control but you know yeah. what people people build something say all right we're going to give this a shot i've actually had this too sue where people go like hey man your reputation's on the line here you know you got to fix this thing <laughs> i heard that too <laughs> yeah 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 well you know what i say to them i say hey look man i got a wife i've got three kids and I got a dog. And as soon as I leave this building, only thing that's on my mind is my wife, my three kids and my dog. I don't think about you. You got to, and when I go to sleep at night, I sleep well, cause I'm not thinking about this. You are. And my job is to make you sleep better at night because you're going to solve your problems. And it's kind of like, damn. Okay. Uh, understood. I said, do you got your marketing orders, right? Go, oh yeah. Yeah. So are you sure? You know, <laughs> this, this guy's going after me and I'm just like, Hey, you know what? It's time. It's yours. You own it everything but the thing is you own the process you own all the issues do you want to own the agreement you know do you want to get the resolution do you want to have a format and you can and it's you know trying to get the most creative ideas out of them and it's nice when they say like damn i didn't think this is going to work but i definitely see light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> yeah that's it's fun. a simple solution it's a simple solution to what we thought was a complex so one of the things that i'm trying to do in my my business that i have now sudico is you know, for 35 years, I've been the intervener. Mm -hmm. and But you learn what it takes. So what I'm trying to do now in my book and in this podcast is to help leaders learn how to do it for themselves. Yeah. So that they, wanna, can, they, can, they can do this for themselves. Right. Yeah. We want to put ourselves out of business. Yes. Absolutely. We, we'll never be out of business, but we're trying as hard as we can. I yeah. want to be unemployed. But stop the suffering. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Uh, and then you get folks. And for some people, this comes very easily. They can take a little journey from their head to their heart. And they may not have been able to express it, but they're, they're natural at empathy. And other people, you got to work with them a little more. It's almost like coaching with these leaders. And uh, there's an organization in London that I work with from time to time. And it's like this exclusive invitation only outfit. And they basically coach CEOs, CEOs, coaching CEOs, and they come and they talk about their issues and, and how can I do this? And, uh, and 
and it's somebody that's inside the fishbowl knowing where the piranhas are saying, okay, these are some of the, but, but they also have folks come in from the outside. Basically, I think good leaders have all the skills that you and I have as interviewers. And they're negotiating the dance, they're mediating the dance, they're reconciling some differences. Facts. Looking at the core issues, they're right. bringing right. people together, letting them, let them co-create solutions. And you know what? You know what's kind of interesting is like you have some of these folks that have been at it for a long time. I, I think about these like seasoned politicians and whatnot. They just naturally do these things. But you talk to private sector folks that really run big operations and whatnot. And it's kind of interesting. I've it's happened a lot. They go like, is that what you call what I do? Okay, I always wonder what you called it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're creative, you're a problem solver. But you're using the kind of like the lingo. So like the the partnering lingo is 85% of the conflict resolution lingo. We we it's like uh we speak the same language. Absolutely. And, and yes. In a structured, in a semi-structured, that's the only distinction that there is. And you look at leaders and they're doing the same thing, but in in another context. And you know what? You, some of these, some of these construction foremen and you know, uh, folks that primary general contractor big corporations, especially the ones who buy into or promote partnering, they are conflict prevention specialists, yes. but it's not, it's not in their vocabulary. They're just doing the job right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how can people get a hold of you if they wanted to learn more about you or, you know, what, what do you have, what do you have that you can share? I was going to say something smart, like uh, can fire flares or smoke signals. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they get on, look, we have uh, Salisbury University. We have not only the Bosman Center for Conflict Resolution, which is sort of like our playground sandbox of doing all these projects around the world, but we also have a Department of Conflict Analysis and Dispute Resolution. And so there's other faculty and we got an undergraduate program and a master's program. And if you go to Salisbury, uh, see www.salisbury.edu, S-A-L-I-S-B-U-R-Y. You can find our Department of Conflict Analysis and Dispute Resolution there. And then also in there is the Bosserman Center for Conflict Resolution. We actually have a separate email address that you can go directly to. And it's really simple. You'll like this one, Sue. www.conflict-resolution.org. But it, it, it all goes right back to the university link. And um, you might be surprised on the on our webpage, the Bosserman webpage, one of our core folks, our, the, our senior practitioner is uh, Arun Gandhi, and Arun is the grandson. I love of Arun! Mama. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I just talked to him yesterday. He's he's in Mumbai, and we're teaching a class this semester, so every, every two years we teach a class together, and it's more of an event than it is a class, and we always leave one class open for the public, and we have like 800 people show up, and so if you understand Gandhi, you understand Arun. If you understand Arun, you kind of get the idea of the background, like software program that runs the center. And we just apply a lot of the Gandhian principles to all sorts of different contexts, even, even in construction. Absolutely. So, 100%. Yeah. 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 People treat people well. You know? Yeah. I thank you so much for being on the podcast. Such a fun time for me to get a chance <laughs> to touch base. I we'll have to do it again. Yeah, yeah. So I always love catching up with you. You're oh, I was telling my wife the other day. I said, Sue, it's like she invents something, she creates something, and she's onto something else. It's uh, but it's all it's always, it always has a life of its own. And and she says she's a creator. And I said, Yeah, Sue Dyer's a creator. 
you're, you're a creator. Oh, and, you, you. And, and you know what? You're leaving footprints for the next generation. You don't even know it yet. Just by all the good stuff that you're doing. People will follow. I hope so. I, I think oh, yeah. that we need leaders that are building their businesses on a foundation of trust. And I don't see that happening nearly enough. Far too much fear. And with AI emerging, 3D, web, uh, technology is going to amplify voices. And I want to make sure the voices they get amplified are the ones that are building their businesses on trust. I bet you there's some studies out there directly on trust. And I'm not talking like these big trustees like the Dennis Wrong or whatever. He does great work. But um, looking at the key indicators of leadership in the private sector. I remember reading this, something out of Duke University years ago and like the top three things and trust and conflict resolution were in the top three. And it's like, what do you want from your managers? What do you want from your leaders? And what do those characteristics look like? And there's all that theory stuff. But if you go out and ask employees of these major organizations and categorize these things, the stuff that you are promoting as um, you know the healthy platform and foundation is being reiterated by folks, you know, down at the uh, cubicle level. So you're definitely onto the right thing, as usual. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate. It. I just need more more people. We got uh, an instrument that measures where you are, what trust level you are. Uh, it's all free. Uh, putting a class together that's going to be all free. So there's a lot of stuff, the resources out there that we're developing. All and, right. Uh, so. And then I'm going to do some coaching and things like that. So it's going to be great fun. Get a, get a whole pool of people who know. My goal is to have a million business leaders building their business on a foundation of trust. And hopefully that will get us some air under the wings of trust. You know what? And you're the person to pull something of that kind of vision off. You'll, you'll do it. Let me be the first to congratulate you that you reached your millionth leader. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So what, what's the thing? Today is... Uh, January 11th, 2022. Has anyone congratulated you before me? No, I have not been congratulated okay. before you. <laughs> it's a 2.01 Eastern time on January 11th, 2022. Congratulations, Sue, for reaching your one millionth leader who's going to build the f- trust as their foundation of their organization and business. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I just appreciate you. Thank you. You too. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Lead with Trust and that wherever you're listening to this podcast, you will subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, send it to someone who you think can really use this message that you got today. And also, please leave us a review. You know, your honest review wherever you listen to your podcast would be much appreciated. And of course, the more reviews we get, the better they are, the better for the podcast. I'm truly on a mission to get more and more people to understand that trust is the essential element. So I hope you'll be part of that. You know, this show really exists to help you leaders to build your business on a foundation of trust so that you can reap the rewards of becoming that top performer in your market. I see over and over where no one can possibly reach the levels of those people that understand how to build a high trust culture in their business. Now today, if you're really curious about starting your trusted leader journey, you can get started right away if you just take the free trusted leader profile and you can learn where you fall along the 
trusted leader continuum. And this really can unlock your confidence on where you are and what you need to do. It's very specific on what you can do. Gives you a snapshot of your leadership style. So if you want to take that, just go to www.sudico.com and then forward slash profile, and you will get immediate access to the trusted leader profile. Once again, that is www.sudico.com forward slash profile. All right, that's a wrap. I just can't wait to hang out with you again on our next episode.